Disclaimer. Please do not email us about the historical inaccuracies we are sure to make. We are not historians. We are idiots. Hi, and welcome to... Anachronismo! The history podcast that finds weird and interesting stories from history, brings them to you, makes jokes about them, and then flies off into the distance, never to be seen again. I'm Max. I'm Jackie. I'm Noel. And today, I'm going to be bringing you the story of Nakahama Manjiro, the fisherman who became a samurai. And if you had ever wanta-wanta to know about where Fanta came from, that's what I'll be talking about. (laughs) Let's just hop right in. So, Nakahama Manjiro was born Manjiro to a family of fishermen. Uh, At the time in Japan, you didn't have a family name if you were just a peasant. And you didn't really have a choice in what you were doing with your life as well. He was born to a family of fishermen, so a fisherman he became. He signed on to a fishing crew along with his brothers and went to work at the age of 14. So, at the time, it was illegal in Japan, because they had a, a closed borders policy to sail out of Japanese waters and return. It was, in fact, punishable by death. So all fishing ships were designed to hug the coast of the islands and fish in the shallows. One day, his boat was blown off course by a storm, and the the fishermen were unable to navigate their way back. They couldn't see any landmarks. They didn't know where they were. They'd been blown so far they couldn't find their way home. And if they returned, they would be executed for being blown out by a storm. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Really? Could they, like, somehow prove they didn't actually go anywhere? Nope. Just be like, we have all the same stuff we had when we left, except for the stuff we ate, and we didn't bring anything new. I would like to call as my surprise witness the thunderstorm. (laughs) And then, like, all of a sudden, the the courtroom just gets dark, and you just hear lightning, hear thunder, and see lightning. (laughs) The old-timey picture of a man blowing as wind and maps (laughs) comes into the (laughs) courthouse. That blow hard. Yep. (laughs) So, unable to navigate their way back, they were eventually shipwrecked on a desert island that had no vegetation or wildlife, where they lived for several months, living off of small fish and the occasional albatross that Manjiro, who was the most dexterous of the crew, would kill with a thrown rock. Wait, can I I ask a uh, tangent question? How does albatross taste? Probably like chicken. Uh, That wasn't my question, but desert island. I thought it was desert as in deserted. Island. Does it really mean desert? Like there's no vegetation? Well, this one was a rocky shoal island. Okay. Like the, off, like the kinds you have off the coast of Maine. Mm. Um, so this one was just a rocky one. Uh, I don't know. I just used desert island as in terms of nothing grows there or lives there. So every once in a while, an albatross would get close enough to the island and Manjira would kill it with a rock and then they would eat it. But eventually, an American whaler ship, the John Howland, approached the island in hopes of finding giant sea turtles to eat to relieve the crew's monotonous diet of hardtack. And they found those sea turtles on a deserted island. (laughs) Fun fact, actually, quick sidebar, is that in sailor lore, sea turtles are the reincarnated souls of evil officers. So, like, uh, captains who mistreat their crew when they die are reborn as sea turtles. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Wait, uh, sorry, and, and which culture? The American US? culture. Oh, okay. American sailor culture of the time. Mm. Yeah. So they were looking for bad captains to eat. So they. Oh, that's such a statement to your current captain. <laughs> this is going to happen to you. If you're not careful. We'll eat you. <laughs> so when they came up to this uh, rocky island, they found these emaciated fishermen who they couldn't really talk to, and they brought them on board. The men were adopted into the boat's crew and brought back to the United States. Manjiro was the crew's favorite because of his inquisitive nature and incredible dexterity. The crew named him John in honor of their ship and shortened his given name, which they could not pronounce, to Mung. And so he became known as John Mung, and we called that during his whole stay in the United States. Eventually, the John Howland came to rest in the port of Honolulu, where a local missionary, one Dr. Judd, figured out that the shipwrecked fishermen were Japanese by a series of tests, including showing them a map, which they didn't know what that was, and then in, uh, bringing out like a small like piece of like Japanese pottery, and they're all like, ah, oh, Nippon, yeah, that's where we're from. So 
the rest of the Japanese men found employment in Honolulu and started new lives. Kind of just deciding, well, we can't go home. Uh, we uh, we don't want to go back to sea. Uh, let's just live here. No one understands us. Whatever. But for Manjiro, things went differently. So on the way back, uh, Manjiro had especially been interested in ship navigation. And he quickly learned English, uh, or at least the rudiments. And he would be constantly asking questions about how the ship found its way with no landmarks to make a course. The captain of the ship, John Whitfield, a childless widower, quickly built a report with Manjiro when he was explaining how the ship navigated and they got to know each other. And impressed by what he saw, Captain Whitfield decided to adopt Manjiro and bring him to his home in Fairhaven, Massachusetts. Isn't he a full-grown man? Or is he like he's a 14. teen? Oh, he's 14. Like a teen. Okay. Like a teen. You know. Okay. Yeah. What about his brothers? Were uh, they all in the same boat? brothers were full-grown men, and they ended up living in Honolulu. Uh, well, he had one brother who was with him who ended up living in Honolulu. The rest were just fishermen. So Manjiro accepted this offer of adoption, and in 1843, they returned to the United States. Once they returned... Whitfield left Manjiro with a local sailor friend and paid a local tutor, one Jane Allen, to teach him, and then left to find himself a wife. After about a week of tutoring Manjiro, Miss Allen was so impressed with his progress that she enrolled him in the local school. Oh, wow. Yeah. Whitfield returned, married, and bought a farm where Manjiro joined them as a member of the family, and Manjiro also apprenticed there with a local cooper. But Manjiro didn't like working on a farm, and he didn't like the drudgery of coopery, making barrels and such, and he longed to return to the sea. I really like the idea that this guy was like, well, I adopted a kid. Uh, time to time to go find a wife? <laughs> the right order? Is, will, I still, will I still turn into a turtle? I don't know. I don't know. Will, will my wife still stay with me if I'm a turtle? I don't, what if I, don't I get know. A, what if I marry a turtle in preparation? Can I Can I kiss a turtle? Am I up for kissing turtles? Am I allowed to be attracted to a turtle before I am a turtle? Wait, did I just become a sea captain because I'm sexually attracted to turtles? Oh my god. Oh my god. (laughs) Oh my god. Manjiro, I'm walking into the sea. I'll never come back. (laughs) So yeah, Manjiro rapidly continued to learn English. He flirted with local girls and uh, actually engaged in the practice of leaving a May wreath on one's door with a little attached poem, which was very cute. And he was brought to church. Although, uh, eventually, the pastor uh, suggested he might be more comfortable with the escaped slaves in the balcony and that he was making uh, the rest of the congregation uncomfortable. Mm. Um, And Manjiro, he, like, read the book and in his official diary described it as – he read the Bible. In his official diary, described it as an exotic tale of fishermen and wizards. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) It's my favorite. (laughs) It's so good. And he was like – and because of – because of, like – was weird to him, and because he was, like, humiliated at the church, he's like, this isn't, this isn't for me. me. Yeah. Uh, instead of studying the Bible, he bought himself two other books, The New American Practical Navigator and Webster's Dictionary. Both practical choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He decided that he would learn as much as he could about both celestial navigation and the English language. And those two books turned out to be the key to his fortune. So, in October 1847... Manjiro signed on to the whaling ship, the Franklin, under Captain Ira Davis. He began the voyage as the cook's assistant, which is the lowest posting on the ship, because of racism. But he soon, like, proved his abilities to the rest of the crew. One story I really liked was, once, when some sailors failed to harpoon a giant turtle, probably Whitfield's wife, (laughs) Manjiro put a knife between his teeth and jumped into the ocean, And after a long period underwater, appeared again holding the turtle with its throat slit. Oh, my God. (laughs) Uh, What a day. What a day for this young man. (laughs) God, just some sort of undersea combat. Yeah. Yeah. Taking out some daddy. You'll never know what happened under there. (laughs) Or I like to think you just swam up to the turtles like, hey, listen, listen, we're going to do this quick little stage pay. I'll pay you five turtle dollars if you just let me act this out and the turtle's like okay and then oh no oh that turtle was tricked he didn't even have five turtle bucks he read the definition of swindle (laughs) (laughs) the fortune of many are built upon the slit throat of turtles that's benjamin franklin wrote that he did write that yeah Mm -hmm. either that or oscar wilde yeah one of the two So, while whaling near the island of Guam, Captain Davis started acting strangely. 
he would fly into rages and threaten his crew with a musket, confine them to their quarters, and, like, stalk them around the ship, just yelling. Midlife Ooh. crisis. Mercury poisoning. Um, turtle transformation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the half moon is rising. <laughs> I get it, because it looks like a turtle shell. I get it. I get it. So the men of the crew met in secret, and they decided to mutiny and restrain the captain for his own safety. They put Does him that in fall under the. That falls under mutiny. It You're does. rebelling okay. against the captain, even that's... an insane captain. Well, that's the thing. It was really risky because if they had not succeeded, they would have been executed. If they succeeded, but then like a tribunal found them to be in the wrong, they would have been executed. Like mutiny is a very serious thing in maritime law. Because it's so dangerous on the ocean, you can't have sailors questioning the captain. It's a whole thing of like a mutiny. There are procedures for uninstalling a captain if they're incompetent or if they're putting men in danger. But if you're just like, I don't like the captain, I'm fucking killing him, overthrowing him. It's like everyone gets fucked kind of thing. Anyway, that's that's a sidebar. So it was very a re- very risky move. So they bound him up in chains <laughs> and dropped him off in Manila to be hospitalized. Then they held an election for a new captain and elected the navigator to replace him and Manjiro as first mate. So a huge promotion. So Manjiro returned to Fairhaven in 1849 with a small fortune in his pocket. So we all know the year 1849, right? What happened in 1849? No? Oh, oh uh, trick question. Uh, <laughs> no, wait, I'm trying to think here. 1849. 1849. There's the California gold rush. Ding, 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 ding. Okay. Nice. So Manjiro cool. <laughs> decided to seek his fortune in the Sacramento Valley to try and make enough money to return to Japan. And eventually he panned enough gold with his trusty mule by his side. The mule was in the, the biography, I don't know why. To buy a steamboat ticket to Honolulu. There he met it back up with his friends from his fishing days, except his brother, who had broken his leg and gotten an infection and died. Oh. And he put together a crew to attempt the voyage back to Japan. Oh, so the other guys wanted to go back too, or this is a different... They, all want, they wanted to go back too. They were like, this is fine, I guess, but, you know, I'd really like to have people not fucking, you know, point at me. Yeah. Have you been to one of these churches out here? It is just not cool. Fun sidebar. Dr. Judd, the missionary uh, from the earlier, terrible man, mm-hmm. awful man, used like converted natives to like, pull his rickshaw around. Awful dude. And he also forced them to quarry blocks from a local coral reef to build his church and house. Uh-huh. So yeah, kind of shitty being around them. Mm, yeah. 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 With being around that church. But with the help of a different local priest, the Reverend Samuel Damon... The men raised enough money to buy a used whaleboat as a landing craft and to hire the ship the Sarah Boyd to take them within reach of their home. Because, of course, you couldn't risk a European ship landing in Japan. They put a tiny Japanese ship on this ship? On the whaling boat? Yep. No, the whaling boat was a Western ship. So they made it back to the coast of Japan in 1851, almost exactly 10 years after the men had been blown off course. Uh, Manjiro wrote a final letter to his adopted father, expressing his gratitude and making his farewells, boarded his whaleboat, and made his way with his friends to the island of Okinawa under cover of darkness. Uh, after they landed, the men were met by local villagers, who, after some confusion because they spoke a different dialect of Japanese, uh, brought Manjiro and his friends to the nearby port city of Kagoshima, where they were lucky enough to meet one of the few noblemen who favored a more open policy toward the West. Hmm. So pretty much purely by chance, they found the one daimyo who wasn't like going to be like, kill him, okay, on to lunch. So Lord Shimazu questioned Manjiro eagerly about the West, wanting to know about such wonders he'd heard of as steam-powered ships, wondering how they moved without sails. After uh, questioning him for hours on end, I'll hear about all this cool like whaling stuff, all these cool ships. He ordered Manjiro to build him a whaling ship in Kagoshima Harbor. <laughs> oh my god, that's so much pressure. <laughs> so much pressure. It's like, this guy was just on there. Yeah. He didn't. He's never built one before. <laughs> oh my god, I hope it went well. Mm-hmm. 
This would be so embarrassing so, if he just makes it like the shape of a whaling ship, but not the right materials <laughs> or like attached correctly. Blah, 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 blah. It just looks like one, but isn't one. He tricks a bunch of turtles into taking the shape of a whaling ship and turtles float. So they just do fine. Like I know there's ropes in the back, but I'm not sure what these ropes do. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to tie them up. Well, luckily. like that's how I would build a ship. Luckily, Manjiro from his studies, both it. At school in the U.S. and on the ships had learned enough about boats that after 48 days of back-breaking labor, they successfully launched a ship in, from Kagoshima Harbor. This sounds impossible. And yet, it was not. All right. I mean, he'd been in the U.S. for a long time with a ship captain. He'd been around boats a long time. He grew up as a fisherman. like, And he was also a smart fucking dude. Yeah. Like, he learned a new language uh, and how to navigate in that language like, pretty much as he was learning the new language. Like, Manjiro was a very smart man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they, they launched their boat, and they celebrated. And then almost immediately after that, an order from Nagasaki came for the fishermen to be brought there to be subjected to another interrogation. So they um, were brought before the daimyo there. And so in Japan, one of the reasons they were closed to the West was because Christian missionaries had come there in the 1500s and had set up a mission for a while and then had been uh, all killed after the new shogun or daimyo. I, I need to check that. Um, basically decided, no, fuck this, fuck Christianity, and killed all the missionaries. And then forced the Japanese- We've Jap- had enough wizards <laughs> and fishermen. Get out of here. <laughs> And then forced uh, the Japanese converts to choose between trampling on an image of the Virgin Mary or being executed. And the ones who didn't do so were killed. Anyway, so they did this to Manjiro and his friends to make sure they hadn't converted to Christianity in the West. Manjiro did so. He stepped on that, that image pretty much immediately. And when asked about how he felt afterwards, replied that his feet were cold since he had gotten used to wearing shoes. <laughs> That guy was such a uh, he was awesome. <laughs> he just got so many wonderful little bon mots. So for the next nine months, Manjiro and his friends were imprisoned and questioned at length. They were questioned about like everything from the climate in New England, much like Japan, to if the Milky Way extended in the sky all the way there, to what American churches were like, and even about American toilets. Manjiro responded, "They are placed over holes in the ground. It is customary to read books in them." Oh, Manjiro. You're so good. They asked him about steamships, railroads, telegraphs, and and so much more. Uh, He gave succinct, impressively detailed accounts of all of them. Because he actually, like, when he was in the U.S., they made a study like, what? Let's, I'm going to look at this railroad and figure it out. Explain how, like, basic concepts of how all of these worked, and even, like, in some detail for all of them. Except for telegraphs, which he was. Honestly, quite skeptical about. He's like, it's all done with magnets. I don't get it. <laughs> um, there's a, actually a great quotation about it, but unfortunately, they don't have time. I will say these quotations are all pretty freely available. If you have time, go read some of Manjiro's explanations of how machines work. I love it. <laughs> so Manjiro argued that the West, far from being a destructive influence, had a lot to offer Japan. He described, for example, the U.S. president as being chosen from the people for his talent and learning. He lives very simply and goes about on horseback, followed by a single retainer. Officials are hard to distinguish, as they never display the authority of their office. They do not demand courtesies from citizens along the road. And uh, made an eloquent and long speech for the opening of Japan, saying about how much that the two cultures had to learn from one another. uh, And that far from being destroyed, Japan would be hugely favored and advantaged by it. So... Finally, he and his companions were released, and he finally got to go see his mom, who he had been wanting to see for 10 years, who he hadn't seen for 10 years, and he made this whole trip back just on the off chance he could see his mom before he was executed. Mm-mm. And she was so happy to see him. Oh, good. I'm like, glad hug- didn't go the other way. Hugged him, kissed him, and brought him to see the grave she had bought for him. <laughs> she could only afford a memorial boulder because she was too poor to afford an actual grave. Did he have any gold left? Uh, Manjiro? Mm-hmm. Um, I assume it probably was confiscated. I don't know. I think he spent it all to get back. But he only had three days to enjoy his reunion with his mother, after which he was called up by the daimyo of the Tosa clan, who elevated him to samurai status wow. and granted him the, the, the right to wear a sword, 
which is a big fucking deal, um, and asked him to teach his retainers about the West. I like to think for <laughs> when he comes back to see his mom, and she's like, I've remarried since you've been gone. And he just walks in, and there's just a storm <laughs> in the living room. <laughs> they're like, no, don't. It's <laughs> <And they laughs> the reason I left, Mom. <laughs> And he just starts slugging it out with a thunderstorm. <laughs> I'm imagining the thunderstorm just like smoking a pipe and like sitting in an easy chair. Yep. And he's like, he's given me a good life. He's blown so many albatross right into our oven. <laughs> so Manjiro started uh, by teaching the retainers the English language. Reasoning, you can't learn about the West unless you know their language. So he taught them the alphabet and the alphabet song which is still not used by Japanese school children today. Wouldn't it be so cool if Jiro decided to be the person to translate English to Japanese and he got to like pick the one-to-one translation of all the words? That would have been cool. Um Did he? Um What? We'll okay. get there. All right, all right, all right. All right, I'm excited. So, yeah, he um he made a series of fans as teaching aids. Uh, sorry, he he made the alphabet song. He he brought the alphabet song from the United States to Japan. Oh. And he made he illustrated a series of fans with the alphabet as like a thing you could like give to kids. Um and he also wrote the first Japanese guide to the English language with such shortcut phrases as how do you do sir and the weather is fine with Japanese explanations not just of what those meant but why you would say them. <laughs> uh which I love. So, uh, yeah, he made his life there for a samurai as a little while. And then in 1854, was summoned to Edo to act as a translator and diplomat when Commander Perry, the dude who brought a bunch of fucking gunships to Japan, returned to make good on his threat. <laughs> he knew the most English of any Japanese person. He knew about American culture. They called him the half-American and were like, okay, but what if he's going to betray us? What if, what if they did this specifically so this man would betray us? So he's under some suspicion. Yeah. But he helped negotiate a trade treaty and terms, and in gratitude was awarded a second sword and a family name. He chose Nakahama in honor of his home village of Nakanohama. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, they obviously didn't they obviously didn't think he had actually betrayed him, betrayed them uh, with that. So in a ceremony to celebrate the trade between the two countries, the Japanese delegation gifted the Americans a teapot, a ceramic vase, a bronze temple bell, and a lacquer writing case with an enamel overlay. Go wanna wanna guess what the Japanese were given? Um they were given a you're lucky we didn't just kill you? No. An American flag. You're both fucking wrong. Oh. You're given a telegraph machine, a daguerreotype camera, and a quarter scale steam powered railroad train on a circular track that was large enough for all of the samurai in attendance to ride. <laughs> Okay, that sounds adorable. <laughs> I don't know why we painted. Well, because the... it was a forced opening, so yeah, I was almost expecting it to be level of like you know the uh, island of Manhattan for like a necklace kind of. No, you know. well, I mean, if the United States forced them to open, I guess they were like, I might as well give you some fun toys. Yeah, um, it was a whole thing, and it's a whole complicated subject. But the Japanese actually did end up not getting fucked too bad by it, and for a long time there was a really good cultural exchange between Japan and America, hmm. especially with Boston. Boston was one of the premier ports that Japan traded with and influenced a lot of our culture. Hmm. The term Boston Brahmin actually tr- comes from a lot of upper-class Bostonians uh, adopting Buddhism. Huh. There was also a huge craze for Japanese culture, various um, decorations, adopting the decorative styles. Basically, There is Bos- a ton of Japanese stuff at the MFA. Yeah, uh, there's a reason for that. Basically, Boston was filled with weeaboo at the time. Um, what does that mean? I've that's seen a derogatory that word, term but I for don't people know who it. are really into Japanese culture. Ah, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, Isabella Stewart Gardner actually opened uh, the ISG after part of uh, what inspired a lot of it was a long affair with uh, Japanese man Okunura, who wrote the Book of Tea. Hmm. Well, that's a story for another time. Um, I'm so intrigued. This new book of mine is very good. Oh, this is all from The Great Wave, Gilded Age Misfits, Japanese Eccentrics, and the Opening of Old Japan by Christopher Benfey. Uh, was where I found out all of this stuff. It's fucking awesome. Mm. So yeah, the the samurai and the delegation were described as delighted <laughs> by this oh by, by this train. That's such an understatement. Yeah, 
It's oh very my good. Gosh. I would love to ride in a train that could fit all the sar- samurai. Yeah, it's like a mini train, but they're like uh. apparently riding on like the back of the cars. So not not they're not in the train. They're like on the little train back of the train cars. Oh, it's so like still, a- great. <laughs> <laughs> still great. Still <laughs> great. So all of these gifts were then given to Manjiro as the official curator of said gifts, since he was the only Japanese person who knew what most of them were for, save for, like, the steam train. <laughs> so after this huge occasion, Manjiro settled into life as a hereditary samurai and set himself to work translating the new American practical navigator into Japanese. He wanted to make sure that no one would ever have to deal with the same terror that he felt when he was blown off of the course of Japan. Because Japan at the time didn't have celestial navigation for a lot of reasons, mostly because it was forbidden to leave. He had to invent a lot of new words, actually, in order to convey some of the concepts in the book. Uh, And by the time the translation was completed, he had been married and had his first child. In 1860... He returned to the United States. He was appointed translator on board the Kanrin Maru, Japan's first steam warship, uh, and participated in the Japanese embassy's establishment in, uh, in the U.S. During the trip over, the boat hit a storm. And due to the former policy of isolation, the crew had little experience on the open ocean, and most of them fell ill. So Manjiro was put in charge. And he was forced to rely on the kindness of sea turtles. <laughs> <laughs> he lashed the Eats. boat to a million sea turtles. Had to eat some humble pie there. <laughs> <laughs> Had to eat some turtle pie there. <laughs> no, he, he navigated the ship to port safely. He visited his foster father, Captain Whitfield. Uh, stopped in a bookseller and picked up a copy of Webster's Dictionary to bring back to his kids as well as a sewing machine and daguerreotype camera for his mother. His mom liked neither of these, complaining that the sewing machine made the seams too tight, Mm -hmm. so she couldn't rip apart the sewing to clean the fabric, which was customary in Japan, and thought the daguerreotype camera was a dumb toy. But he liked it, and he actually began taking photos and became one of the premier artistic photographers of the time. Wow. So Manjiro was married three times and had seven children. To gloss over sort of a sadder end, because of the way Japan's foreign policy and internal policy developed he lost a lot of like the rights he had as a samurai he was accused of treason a few times he died in in poverty and obscurity and it's Mm. it was very sad but he lived an amazing life and in 1918 his eldest son dr nakahama toichiro donated a valuable sword to fairhaven in token of his father's rescue and the kindness of the town it is displayed in the town's library even today. Oh, cool. And was up there even during World War II. Hmm. So that's, uh, that's the story of Nakahama Manjiro, who was just the coolest. Oh, so I much love stuff him. happening. Yeah. yeah. He's like one of the first stories in this book, The Great Wave. And it is delightful and full of great lines, like my favorite, uh, a book of fishermen and wizards. Mm-hmm. Like, mm, like, I laughed out loud so many times reading this history book. Which is rare for a history book that, you know, so it's, it's really good. It's really interesting. Uh, would recommend. Still working my way through it, actually. Any hypotheticals? If that captain who was abandoned in Manila, or I guess not abandoned, given? Hospitalized? Hospitalized. Fine, hospitalized. What do you think he would say? They're all out to get me. <laughs> yeah, I was similar. To like, I'm turning into a turtle. <laughs> was me I don't know what the state of mental health care was at the time. Bad. Okay, so resentment, probably. I have a, I have a master's degree in psychology, uh, and part of that is learning about the history of psychology. Yeesh. And uh, at that point in time, um, well, let's say the best he could hope for was basically uh, quiet rest and sea air. Huh. At worst, he might have been tied in a ball with a bunch of other patients, like a literal ball uh, as a therapeutic method. Yeah. Or this was before the lobotomy, so not lobotomized. Could have been whipped. Could have been – there's a lot of awful stuff. Let's not get into the, the – like there's a lot of awful stuff they did to mental patients back mm. then. So let's hope he was in one of the hospitals where they're like, eh, he'll sort himself out after a while. Yeah. I'm telling you, I'm a turtle. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, you're a turtle. I always keep challenging those rabbits to races. Because <laughs> I'm a turtle and I can beat them. <laughs> 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 what would you give today? <laughs> the well, gift to... Uh, open Japan? Open Japan. 
170 years ago. I would give them a Zoom with a <laughs> recording of this podcast on it. God damn it, Noel. Gosh, that's such a waste of power and influence. <laughs> you don't want to blow their minds with like too, something too, too technological. Exactly, so. <laughs> Microsoft Zoom. I mean, this could be devastating, but it, uh, it might be nice to give them like seeds and little uh, seedlings of plants that they don't have in Japan. You mean give them an invasive species? Yes. <laughs> I think it would be impressive. They'd be like, oh my gosh, I don't know what they don't have in Japan that we have here. Oh, mm. Years of corn. Wow. Dang. Heck, I give them an armadillo. Just like they'd be like, what Uh-oh. the fuck is this? Oh, that's a good choice. <laughs> because that's an American uh, American creature. Yeah. That's Make a good sure choice. you don't give them one of the ones that has leprosy because that would be an act of war. And don't give them two or else it'll be an invasive species. <laughs> Just one armadillo. And if you're like, here's an armadillo, do with it what you will. Give it whatever Japanese name you want. Yeah. What about one of those sequin pillows? <laughs> that you wipe it two different ways? Oh, yeah. They'd be like, hell yes. This is my jam. I think the armadillo has my heart. I think that's that's a good, good one. One in doubt, cute little aminal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, speaking of cute little aminals and the advertising campaign for Fanta that features anthropomorphic animals having weird Fanta-related orgasms. Tell us about Fanta, no? Were we talking about Whoa. that? What? <laughs> <laughs> you don't know about this advertising campaign that Fanta did? With these, like, sexy animals? No. And they're, like, all, like, playing around in a garden, but, like, like they're all, like, animal women in, like, bikinis and, like, squeezing fruit, and it looks was, like they're... Was this, like, a commercial yeah. in the 90s? No. Is this a dream in the 2010s. 2010s. In the 2010s. 2010s. <laughs> dream you had. It sounds like the 90s, but wow. <laughs> Judging by the CGI alone, definitely the 2010s. Wow. Never heard of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a seamless segue. It was weird because, no, I, I, my first version, like, the first thing I was looking to do today was actually um, about, it just would not have played as well because it was about, like, just how... I mean, maybe I'll do it in the future. Oh, my God. What was it? Totally an off-topic discussion. Now I can just play this out. The long game is driving Jackie insane. No, I, originally I was looking at the idea of how uh, various animals were used in wartime for uh, either espionage or for a lot of bombs. Yeah. There were bat bombs. Yep. There was an American dentist who wanted to do firebomb Japan using trained bats. Mm-hmm. And they apparently, in one of their testings, uh, I'm almost getting into this story now. On one of their testings, like the, ra- the rats, the bats uh, roosted underneath a fuel tank and it exploded and destroyed the testing area. So, <laughs> does that make it a good test? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, but I like, yes. They learned does. something. They learned something. Uh, but yeah, I, I looked up a ton of these stories but none of the except the photography pigeons none of the stories were happy they were all just bad sad stories so i skipped over it yeah so. it's like the insect warfare one so sounded interesting at first and then it was just sad so instead i'm gonna go to nazi germany is that where fanta was invented yeah christ <laughs> really so the look on your face of both like big old smile and also like kind of scared eyes. <laughs> Everybody? Yeah. So... I assumed it was somewhere in South or Latin America based on, nope. you know. The Wanta Wanta Fanta song. Just on its current advertising stuff. Well, Fanta actually comes from the German word fantasy for fantasy. fantasy. Um, and so that's uh, where the name actually comes from. And I will get into the story as Jackie looks increasingly uncomfortable. Because I was just like, whose fantasy is, what did you say, animal orgasms? Furries. Look, hey, furries, you do you. I, that seems like a really small consumer Base? slice to go after. Look, everything's erotic in European advertising. <laughs> really? Not everything, but a lot. So were these advertising campaign in europe or yeah you oh oh okay we can look it up in our spare time yeah no look tauntedly into the distance so a lot of people know some of the basics about how coca-cola started in the 19th century as you know it was formulated with cocaine it was sold in medicinal shops and then it headquartered and grew as a company in atlanta so it started to gain a lot of international appeal 
And so much so that by the end of the 1920s, it had started to sell in Germany. And there was a person, Ray Rivington Powers, who started distributing uh, Coca-Cola and Coca-Cola advertisements in Germany in the late 1920s. And it actually started to pick up and actually sell enough that they incorporated Coca-Cola GmbH to be the headquarters in Germany. So obviously, as it grew in the 1930s, there were a lot of political tensions in that area. And Coke pushed, just kept pushing through all of the political strife around them. At some points, they were accused of... um They were walking this really strange line politically where their home headquarters in the U.S. and their international holdings in Germany were sort of caught in this uh, political uh, strife where people in the U.S. were hearing that, you know, rumors, not exactly true that, well, not really actually true at all, that Coca-Cola was financing Hitler. And on the other end, uh, Germans were accusing um, the coca-cola gmbh of being uh jewish sympathizers so they had a lot that they had to they had this weird fine line that they were walking with between both companies to try to sell as much coke as possible to people in total different political alignments yeah i feel like they could have just taken a hard stance on that though and they didn't but then they would jeopardize their profits max in fact they were actually starting to lose ground in germany but they decided to double down by being a huge sponsor of the berlin olympics in 1936 there are actual i saw these like actual coca-cola signs from that olympic event like with just the swastika on it fuck it's in the uh, the back. Oh, yeah, sorry. it's in the background. See that that hawk. Oh yeah, that hawk is holding a swastika. Uh, yeah, yeah. So they a just uh, no, it's that's important. Let's not make it cutesy. They just doubled down on it and tried to wow. sell as much as possible. And they were the German GmbH was run by a Max Kite, who was just a really diligent businessman. He was appointed when Ray Powers passed away in 1938, and so he started heading up the German operation. But the Olympics actually had the impact of really bolstering the sales and other competitive competitive brands, including one called Africola, um, that was a German-made. What's up? I was really hoping it was just like uh, you know an African cola, and they were just like proud of uh, proud of the state they were from. No, I, I think it's entirely... I, I look, try to look up the etymology yeah. of the... It's entirely racist. That's what I'm guessing. No, it's... I, I couldn't find anything yeah. about the naming, because it... Yeah. Okay, go on. Anyway. <laughs> Tell us more about Nazi sodas, Noel. Do we, should we not do this one? No, do this, man. I was... Uh, no, I feel like I'm giving you a hard time for this, and you're. it's not... You, you're not the person who made these decisions. You're just reporting on this insane series of stupid and awful decisions that the Coca-Cola company made. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll kind of just speed through <laughs> through that then. Because, <laughs> I mean, nothing nothing kind of, nothing really good happened with it. I mean, the, the sales were up in Germany. The sales were up in the U.S. Um, so neither... The political uh, differences in strife did not in any way really impact one country over the other uh, after the Olympic events. Yeah. But even after uh, increased German hostility, like when Austria was invaded, yeah. uh, Coca-Cola just continued to supply all the syrups and they had the their supply chain just going out to Germany still. I mean, that would not be different today. No, it's mm-hmm. true. No, but it was fast because I hadn't, you know, it was like one facet of war I never really thought of. You have one company with international branches that just then gets divided by a major war, what that company then does. And in this case, they're like, all right, we got to keep it going as long as possible. Or the country maybe takes it over. That's actually why this Max Kite was considered a hero by Coca-Cola, because he actually was navigating that terrain where he did not explicitly, from investigations done after, he didn't have really an affiliation with the Nazi party, but he had to work within that framework of not being anti-Nazi or else the government would have just taken the company. So he was the one running Coca-Cola GmbH. And then when Germany started invading other countries, those Coca-Cola plants actually also started to be taken over. And so he 
was put in charge of all these other Coca-Cola bottling plants in like the Netherlands. And it's just, it's crazy. That, one way to expand your company. Ah, uh, Das Coca-Cola Land. Ah. Uh. Yeah. It's really like. Interesting. Mm. I'll just kind of go on to where Fanta comes into this. So when the U.S. got into the war, they totally cut off both communication and supply chains of the Coca-Cola U.S. to Coca-Cola GmbH. So all of a sudden, uh, this Max Kite person is in um, is in Germany, and he just has no more supplies for making Coca-Cola. And with war rationing, they had limited supplies. So this is where Fanta got made from. So Fanta, we know as the orange-flavored soda. When they had run out of Coca-Cola syrup and were trying to still keep the Coca-Cola company going, they started to make their soda out of apple pomace lying around <laughs> literally it was like just apple fibers like the pulp and stuff left over from any juice squeezed out of it and whey the byproduct of making cheese so they made this the protein soda fruity cheesy like soda it tastes the same as it does today that uh one historian who had written about it just said that very bold reporting here just said in retrospect i don't imagine it tasted very good <laughs> <laughs> you know stretching that historical imagination ah oh, fuck but the crazy thing is fanta became popular it was still sold under coca-cola and had beet sugar in it um, and apparently there was a lot of heavy sugar rationing. So people used it as a sweetener instead of just a straight cheese drink. <laughs> just ugh. it it had to have tasted awful. But the sales of it actually went up and people used it yeah, as a sweetener. I guess it's like when you see recipes now that are like, oh, God, why would you do that? But some of them are box cakes and then you add a like a whole bunch of soda to it. It's supposed to be able to make a cake that way. It sounds disgusting. Effervescent crusts. Mm. I mean, yeah, it probably is a lot more airy, but it's probably also super sweet. Oh, yeah. And fruity. And this one quote from this uh, uh, historian, uh, Pendergrast, wrote that there's no question he was a Nazi collaborator, but he was not a member of the Nazi party. His allegiance was to Coca-Cola. Not to Hitler. Oof. Uh. I know, like, just a total corporate... <laughs> Oh. And, the, and the U.S. company had no idea what was going on throughout the end of World War II. And when World War II ended, they, <laughs> they were like, let me see the books, guys. How's he, how are you doing over they, there? Well, they found that he had kept the companies profitable, had managed to keep all of the other Coca-Cola companies in German-occupied territories running. And he even gave them the recipe for Fanta. Don't know why they'd want it. They immediately stopped producing it. But yeah, he kept his job and was made like head of Coca-Cola Europe following the war. I mean, he did well by the company. Mm -hmm. And then Fanta in the 1950s came back by name only with competitors in the U.S. making other flavored sodas. And so they brought back the name Fanta. Apple weight protein, protein yeah, Fanta. Not, not the apple cheese by apple product cheese byproduct soda. It was, uh, the, I think, the more traditional orange flavor that we know today. <laughs> they made it orange so it would match the same color as the cheese that they originally used then. There's also purple Fanta and uh, yellow Fanta. Yep. Purple cheese, yellow cheese. I think there's a green one. That's not cheese. It's just apple skins. Yeah, it's just apple skins. <laughs> you know, the best part of the apple. It's the skin. It's where all the flavor is. So, yeah. The nutrients. I mean, when I was a kid, I would just eat apple skins. By themselves? Yeah, I mean, I'd eat the rest of the apple, but if I peeled an apple, I'd save those skins and I'd eat them. And I would tell myself it was good for me. I don't think it ever occurred to me to... Peel an apple. I think I would just eat it. You just shove it in your mouth hole and I mean, I would it chew in one bite. But I wouldn't take the skin off first. Apples were definitely not something I would eat the skin off of first. And then this partitioning strategy of yours. That's fine. I guess I'm, I'm trying to think of what foods I did. I did that with chicken nuggets from McDonald's. Ugh. That sounds disgusting. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. I can't imagine eating the chicken nugget insides without the outside. Well, here's the deal. I could definitely just eat the outside. It used to work a lot better when, A, I was a kid, and <laughs> B, the chicken in McDonald's was not the 100% 
chicken kind of uh when it was there was definitely a a huge shift in the taste of chicken nugget uh taste and flavor when they switched over to the it's now made of 100 percent chicken Mm -hmm. so you liked it better when it wasn't all chicken when it was pink goo well, whatever. I was a kid. <laughs> I was a kid. Look, I get it, man. I get it. Oh, come on. I love chicken nuggets as a kid, too. Yeah. I'll nugget chicken. What? So, anyway. <laughs> you nugget your chicken. Nugget your so, chicken. Yeah, just an interesting story of how Fanta came about from the German Fanta say as they were putting in all the food scraps they could and squeezing it into a bottle and giving that cheese-flavored bottles to Germans, and it's sold like hotcakes. Like... Cold, fizzy hotcakes. So I can see it tasting well in like pancakes where you want some sugar in there, but it's also kind of like a yeah. sweet, savory breakfast. Like a, kind of like an, 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 an arepa, you know, like a cheesy, sweet, little fruity pancake. Yeah. Like, I guess the fruitiness isn't definitely in the arepa, but you can put like cheese in an arepa. You ever had an arepa? I think so. They're these cornmeal pancakes around a cheesy center. They're amazing. Mm, yes, mm. I have had those. Yeah, My favorite street food. If you had to make soda pop from things that were lying around, what things would you choose? I have some extra sauce from some Kung Pao um, <laughs> cauliflower. <laughs> so I think that would make an interesting soda. It's sweet. It's got like a spicy aftertaste. Yeah. Um, I think it would be an interesting thing on your palate. Yeah, I'd, I'd try that. I'd, I'd, I'd party down on that. Yeah. I would make soda from Turkish Delight. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because Turkish Delight is already a candy that was, like, came to be very popular because of, like, wartime rationing. Because it was a thing that you could make with, like, pretty sparse ingredients. So, I feel like there's money to be made there. Uh, plus, you can get, like, rose petal flavor. I feel like a rose soda, you know, there's there's a time for that now. Oh, yeah. That yeah. sounds interesting. Yeah. Do you guys remember if Yoohoo is carbonated or not? Yoohoo is not carbonated. They sell it at, at Mayfair, and I have it when I'm having a bad day. <laughs> Mayfair is a local bodega. It's more of like a grocery store, hmm. but like specialized for like Brazilian groceries. Ah. Yeah. I haven't had a Yoohoo in so long. You haven't eaten in so long? No, I haven't had a Yoohoo in so long. They're great. They I got used them. used to have them after swim lessons as a kid all the time. Yeah. That gives you the swimming energy. After. Yeah. Yeah. Yoohoo is itself a pretty good example of a soda that like was made like, let's fuck it. Let's make a chocolatey kind of soda. Mm-hmm. But flat. No, what, what would you make a soda pop out of? I don't know. I think I would... Sea turtle blood. I would make my one out of sea turtle blood uh, because I think that that's a taste we've got, you know... Sea turtle blood is good, but... <laughs> and and the, um, the mascot would be a half tortoise man being like, <laughs> being like, drink my curse upon yourself. And that would be our, our, ma- our motto. Cursed soda. Well, I'm not going to top that, so yes, I'm not even going to... Cursicola. Okay, yeah. How can I top that? Uh, you can do it, Noel. I believe in you. So Mr. Powers, who was running Coca-Cola GmbH, was he an American or was he a German? Because that impacts my hypothetical question I was going to pose. The name of, like, Mark Powers? I feel like that could go either way. Uh, Ray Powers. Ray, I'm sorry. Uh, he was an American expatriate. Okay. If you were running a branch of an American company in a country that was about to be declaring war on a lot of places uh would you try and go back to the united states or just stick it out to see if if your uh skills at company making are good request a transfer i would poison hitler i just like poison like i'd send like a little case of coca-cola and be like oh hitler your favorite soda Maybe like, put this in the rations for the troops. Yeah, and you know the first one I wouldn't drink. I keep just keep sending it, I keep sending and sending it until they like got to trust me, and I just poison all of them. Yeah, yeah, and then I would be on a when by the time they drank it, it'd be like a while later, and I'd be just like lock, locked inside of like a cooler, drifting on the seas towards America. <laughs> how it works. Yeah, yeah that's, how, that's how it works. <laughs> to this day, refrigerators wash up on shore. No people inside. No. Just refrigerators. Somet- sometimes Coca-Cola inside. Was, uh, no, it was more of just people, stop dumping your refrigerators in the ocean. <laughs> this was more of a keep the earth green kind of message. But how will the PSA? Not a, yeah. How, Max, I don't care. How will sea turtles keep their food cold? Uh, Without their free refrigerators. Wow. This is That's oh, their wow. penance. That sounds Max. like an argument for the big- Everything uh, is hot. <laughs> 
penance for being bad captains. That's true. Sounds like you're being either paid off by Big Fridge or Big Turtle. Two powerhouse companies with a lot of lobbying power. They're both pretty cold-blooded. There's no blood in fridges. Fridges don't run off blood. They have coolant. It's like their blood. Well, that's going to do it for us tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Max. I'm Jackie. I'm Noel. And this has been Anachronismo. Uh, if you enjoyed our show, please uh, drop us a rating on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, whatever. If you are in the Boston area, we are doing a live show on November 3rd, uh, and we'd love to see you there. It's uh, free with a suggested donation. Uh, we're opening for the show Improv History, and uh, we, we'd really love to see you. If you'd like to contact us for more details or just to talk, uh, you can email us at itsanachronismo at gmail.com. Um, and we're also joining the Make Fun Network. We announced this a few episodes ago, and it's taking a little while. But we should be up on there uh, by the end of the year. So uh, we're excited to announce that and to be a part of that with Matt Bistany's various other shows, such as Top 5 of Death or Tool Time. I don't know what that was the called. The one where we watched Tool Time and uh, Home Improvement and something else. Yeah, I don't think that one has launched yet. Okay. I think they're still recording stuff. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but they do have a show called This Rules, This Sucks. Yeah. It's about not having nuance. Yeah, this rules. This sucks. We're uh, we're another show without nuance, as you can tell by how we make our jokes about marrying sea turtles. <laughs> there are no gray areas. It's always right. Bl- black or white on sea turtles. Always marry sea turtles. A M S T. Always marry sea turtles. We will be selling little rubber bracelets with this on it. Amst. Amst. Get amst with anachronismo. Can we make that our hashtag? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, please tweet at us at, at, at Anak Podcast, the hashtag Amst uh, <laughs> hashtag, in order to talk to us about your sea turtle experiences. Have you ever dated a sea turtle? I'll never tell, unless you tweet at me with hashtag Amst, and then I will tell of all the times I've seen, touched, or kissed sea turtles. And let me tell you, it's not just a joke. I've done all three of those. Anyway. Oh my god, I need to make a Twitter just to get this answer. (laughs) Please do help me with the marketing. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time here on Anachronismo. Anachronismo.